0: Uh, Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, and I'd I'd invite you to pull out those message notes and follow along this morning. Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3. And let's look at verse 9. We'll be in Romans chapter 3 and in Romans chapter 6 this morning. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together have become worthless. There was no one who does good, not even one. And I'd invite you again to pull out those message notes and keep your Bibles open to Romans chapter 3, and then we'll flip over to Romans chapter 6 in just a moment. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning I'm asking that you would, as always, apply your word to our lives. We need you. Apart from you, your word tells us that we can do nothing. Help us, Lord. It's not by our might nor by our power, but it's by your spirit. The spirit of the living God that convicts and convinces, that's our counselor, that enables, that helps us, that refreshes us, that renews us, that cleanses us, that fills us, that helps us and aids us. We need your Holy Spirit's empowerment and help. We humble ourselves before you, Lord, as your people this morning. In Jesus Christ's name we pray again. Amen. Did you hear, did you hear the story about the 85 year old lady? Did you hear the story about the 85 year old lady who went on a blind date with a 95 year old man? There was an 85-year-old lady that went on a blind date with a 95-year-old man. And after the date, she came home to her daughter's house, and her daughter said, Mom, you look distraught. You look upset, the daughter said. What's wrong, Mom? She said, the elderly lady said, I had to slap him three times. (laughs) I had to slap him three times. Are you telling me, Mom, that, that he got fresh with you? He got fresh with you? No, the daughter said. I thought he was dead. I thought he was dead. When it comes to our spiritual life, I hope you're not dead. If you're dead, we want to slap you awake. We want to wake you up today, tonight. Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night, we want to slap us awake. There was a recent Smithsonian Magazine article, and it dealt with the usual thing. Where does evil come from? Where does it come from? Does it come from our nature, or does it come from our nurture, our environment? The lead article went on, and it said they're doing all kinds of studies today, and they're finding out that Genetically speaking, we are predisposed towards sin. That's what the Bible has said all along, all of these years. And in fact, on the front cover of this Smithsonian magazine, they had a picture of two little babies, identical twins. The one on the left, they drew a a devilish type of uh, horns and a tail. And then the other one, they drew a picture of an angelic, Halo. Where does evil come from? Does it come from nature? Does it come from our genetic disposition? Or does it come from our nurture, our environment? And the Bible says both. Both. All the way from Adam and Eve to Noah. All the way to Abraham. This inherited predisposition toward evil, the Bible says, has been passed on from one generation to another generation. In fact, it got so bad that Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, said out loud, lamented out loud, how can a leper change its spots? And the answer is, it cannot. And we cannot, apart from God's mercies, apart from God's tender forgiveness, apart from God's Holy Spirit empowerment in our lives, we cannot change. And we don't have the power to do the things that we know that we should do or that we want to do. And this passage of Scripture deals with this important fact. It talks about this right here in this particular passage of Scripture. The Apostle Paul indicates and says that all of the things that the Old Testament instituted all the things that we're talking about, the laws that were given, we're talking about the Ten Commandments, these things in and of themselves could not change the basic nature of those people at all. They could not change them. It's kind of like the wet paint sign or the stop or stay off the grass signs. I have touched more wet paint because of those signs, and you have too. My point, when you see a wet paint sign, or when you see the sign that says, stay off of the grass, it gives you no power whatsoever to make you obey the commandment. It identifies that it's sin, and it makes you feel guilty, but it has no power to restrain us. The Ten Commandments were given, all of those dietary restrictions and Sabbath laws were given to the Old Testament people, and they were given the sacrificial system, but in and of itself, these particular things had no power, had no umph to change people whatsoever. And the Apostle Paul begins in Romans chapter 3 saying, look at it with me one more time, he said, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike, and if you like to circle in your Bible, circle all under sin. All under sin. Fact number one, the Bible says that we are all sinners. And we are born with this carnality. We are born with this propensity of evil. And it cannot be tamed. It cannot be educated. It cannot be altered any way except because of God. And this is a fact. It mentions Jewish people and it mentions Gentile people. Specifically, we know that down through church history to the present, there, there are Gentile people who tried to change, who tried to receive some sort of spiritual power. At that particular time in the Greco-Roman world, they did things that was called, uh, they participated in what was called mystery religions. And often what would happen, in order to get some sort of spiritual power in their life, they would beat themselves, they would flagellate themselves, they would cut themselves, and they would get in some sort of drug-related stupor, and then they would cut an animal's throat, and they would stand underneath the blood of the animal being poured over them. And in this ritual, they were trying trying to receive spiritual power in their lives. But notice Paul says in verse 9, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. They're all under sin. And he goes on in verses 9 through 11 and he says, No one is righteous. No one has any spiritual understanding. There is no worthwhile achievement before God. There is no purity. There is no innocence. There is no peace. There is no hope. Like metal being drawn to magnet, this propensity of evil draws us down and It gets even worse when we read about this. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, it says, The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfless ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And I don't know about you, but that makes me depressed. It wipes me out. When I read something like that, because they're describing human nature and they're describing people all around us and situations that people find themselves in. When we were in Southern California pastoring a church, I remember in one week, in one week, three significant newspaper articles came out. They all made major headlines. Number one, number one, a well-known judge was accused and later found guilty of trafficking in pornography a professing Christian. number two, number two, a vice principal at an elementary school was accused and later found guilty of sexually abusing children. And number three, it just happened boom, 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 in one week, a large church pastor, not of a mainline church, of an evangelical church near Palm Springs, California. It was circulated on the Internet, a picture of himself, his wife, and another lady in a hot tub and with no clothes on and sunbathing and having a party in their backyard with no clothes on. This propensity of evil, this carnal nature, the Apostle Paul says, again, cannot be tamed. It cannot be educated. And it is a real problem. You say, Pastor Ron, is there a remedy? Is there a remedy? We have to realize, number one, we have to realize that through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, our carnal nature can be rendered powerless. Our carnal nature can be rendered powerless. God did come up with a solution, and I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Turn over with me to Romans chapter 6. And I want you to notice verses 1 through 3. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? It's a rhetorical question. He answers it by no means. Notice, we die to sin. How can we live it any longer? Or don't you know, if you like to circle in your Bible, there are three of those, circle that. Don't you know that all who were baptized in Christ Jesus were also baptized in his death. Notice verse 4, he mentions the word baptism again. We were therefore buried with him through baptism, there it is, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, that we too may new, live new life. Now skip down to verse 6. For we know, there it is again, if you like to circle that, there's that phrase, for we know what? That our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin, what? may be rendered powerless. I didn't say that. The Apostle Paul said that. The Bible says that. The Bible says that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, and when Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, he made provision not only for the penalty of sin, but also for the power of sin. Can I get an amen? Amen. It has been rendered powerless. I didn't say that. He says it. Now look at verse 9 with me. There it is again. For we know, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. Again, to reiterate, the Apostle Paul is saying, that the same power that defeated death and Satan and sin on the cross, that's what Jesus did, and the same power that resurrected Jesus Christ from death is available for every Christian person and for every single Christian believer. For every single Christian person and every single Christian believer. Now, did you notice the word baptize? where we get the word baptizio or baptism was mentioned several times in verses 2 and 3 is it is a term it is a term that was used in the first century for dipping a light colored garment into a dye that was say like scarlet in color or red in color and the fabric was dipped into this particular scarlet dye and it would change the color from white to red, or would change the color from white to scarlet. And it would be changed in its identity from the original color again to scarlet. And so the act of dipping, the act of baptism, resulted in changing its identity. It resulted in changing its identity. And I want you to listen to what somebody writes about this. Listen to what they say. Christ died for us on the cross. He was raised from the dead for us at the tomb. When we believed in the Savior's death and resurrection, we were dipped into the same scene. Our identity was changed. When we came to Christ, we were placed into him at his death because uh, his death became ours, his victor, victorious resurrection became ours, his awakening to life became our awakening. His powerful walk became our powerful walk. Before we can experience the benefits of all that, we have to know it and we have to believe it, this person writes. The Christian life is not stumbling along, hoping to keep up with the Savior. He lives in me, I live in Him, and this identification with Him, His power becomes mine, His very life becomes my life, guaranteeing that His victory over sin is mine to claim I no longer need to live as a slave to sin. I no longer need to live as a slave to sin. And this is such an important perspective to have. I need no longer live as a slave to sin. Steven Spielberg, who is the Hollywood movie director, he just recently made a movie about the life of Abraham Lincoln about the last four months of his presidency. And in this particular movie, he details what Abraham Lincoln did to pass the 13th Amendment outlying slavery. He was like a bulldog. He was sticking to it. He used all his political power. He used all of his persuasion because he knew that the Civil War was really about the Emancipation of Proclamation freeing slaves. And unfortunately, Abraham Lincoln died before that amendment was passed in 1865. But did you know that after it was passed, the news that the slaves were free went clear across from the steps of Washington, D.C., all across Virginia, down to the southern states of Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia and Louisiana. And all the major papers at that particular time, they had the major headlines, Slavery is Abolished! And yet something strange happened. By and large, those slaves that were in those southern states lived and continued on in their slavery. In their slavery. How tragic and how sad. And yet, this is often the way that Christian people are taught. And this is the way Christian people often believe. They believe that There is, in salvation, the forgiveness of sin. And they can be forgiven of that sin. But they don't understand and they don't realize, especially in Romans chapter 6, that the Apostle Paul talks about the real possibility of being free from the power of sin and the ability to live a victorious Christian life. People just don't understand that and cannot comprehend it. And yet the Bible clearly teaches that when we give ourselves completely to Jesus, that carnal nature has been rendered powerless according to the phraseology of the Apostle Paul. Second, second point I want to make is, you say, Pastor Ron, if that's the case, if that's the case, if he frees us from not only the penalty of sin, from the from the power of sin, then how come more Christian people don't understand that? How come more Christian people don't live victorious Christian lives? Well, we also have to realize that this can happen, and we also have to go on. And number two, we have to render ourselves completely to Christ. I want you to look at verse 13 with me, and notice what he says here. He says in verse 13, Notice, he says, do not offer the parts of your bodies to sin as instruments of wickedness, but what? But rather, offer yourselves. Circle that word if you like to circle in your body. The word offer, it means render, it means to give yourself, it means to consecrate yourself, whatever terminology you want to, you want to use, to God as though you've been brought from death to life and offer to him the parts of your body to be used as instruments of righteousness. Notice verse 14, for sin shall not, shall not be your master. Now it's interesting to me because the aorist tense here in the original Greek is used, and as in Romans chapter twelve one, where the Apostle Paul says, present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, it is used in the same way. You say, what does that get to mean? This is what it means. Many of us think that sanctification is a process. We believe that it's a second work of grace, and we believe it's also a process. But here in this particular passage of Scripture, and right here in verse 13, the Eros tense is, is, is meaning like this. It's a wholesale commitment and consecration completely making Jesus the Lord of your life. And often we don't understand that when we're new Christians, and we don't understand what it means to pursue the pearl of the great price. We don't understand that. And so when the Bible tells us that we present ourselves as living sacrifices, it's not done in little stages here, in little stages done, in little stages here. It is to be a once all-time event. That's the aorist tense. Render yourselves. Completely, as in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. May Christ our master. Now, we have, we have friends in the evangelical church, such as Chuck Swindoll, Charles Stanley, the old J. Vernon Gee, who would tell you that you could live extended periods in your life without sinning. They use different terminology. They call it victorious Christian living. We talk it sanctification. They call it victorious Christian living, whatever it may be. But the outcome is the same. We believe that when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, when you give yourself completely to God, that this carnal nature can be rendered powerless and you can receive spiritual power in your life to live a holy life. To live a holy life. And live extended periods of time without sinning. A victorious Christian life. Now, to be free from the power of sin, we not only need to give ourselves completely to God, but we need to also understand that what God promises and what He's capable of doing. I think it was Jay and Gee that told this story. You remember the story that he told. It's been around for years. He told about how a couple were childhood sweethearts, and they loved each other, and they got married at a very young age, and while their marriage was not perfect, it was very rewarding and very happy for both of them, and all of a sudden, the husband died of a, of a heart attack, and the wife was beside herself, and she did not know what to do, so what she did is she had her husband embalmed She had her husband embalmed, and she put him in a chair in a glass case, and then she put him in the front parlor of the the entryway door. And so every morning when she exited and every evening when she came back in, she would say, Hi, John. Good to see you today. Good to see you today. And this went on year after year, and finally she got a little bored with her life, and she decided to take a whirlwind tour around France and and England and, and around Europe. And she did this for about a year. And over there, she met, a, she met another American. And, and uh, they had a romance, and they fell in love. And, and, uh, and all the while, she never mentioned anything about old John. <laughs> Entombed in the front parlor in this glass case. And can you imagine driving up that driveway and making their way up that driveway, and all of a sudden, John gets on her side and takes her and lifts her up and he's going to carry across the threshold and he carries across the threshold and he hits the door and he walks in and he sees John in that case. Who is he? Well, that's John. That's my old man. Honey, he's dead! And he went out back and he buried, he dug a hole and he put John's body in the hole. Did you know that according to the Apostle Paul, the carnal nature can be rendered powerless? And yet how many Christians don't understand that and don't realize that and they live defeated Christian lives because they continue to play around with the carnal nature and they excuse their willful sin and habitual sins under First John nine, Which is, by the way, a beautiful scripture. But in just a moment, I'm going to illustrate my point. And let you know that's really not the way to live the Christian life, by always claiming first. John. One nine. Well, also the Apostle Paul talks about the benefits, in verses twenty two and twenty three. He talks about the benefits. He talks about the benefits of of of, of living in this. Victorious Christian life. Look at verses 22 and 23. But now that you have been set free from the sin and become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice he says, benefit number one, because of God's grace, we're freed from the mastery of sin. He just wants to reiterate it. It says it right there. You're free from the mastery of sin. Benefit number two, because of God's grace, we become enslaved to God. He, he says this is a benefit because he comes in and he cleanses up the carnal nature and cleanses it and, 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 and it becomes rendered powerless and all of a sudden God comes in and he fills up that empty area where that carnal nature is and, and he becomes your master. And then benefit number three, this leads to sanctification. At least he uses the word holiness. Remember, set apart, made holy, used of God. And then benefit number four, you enjoy eternal life, which is a quality of life that begins right now and lasts for all of eternity. Now, this is so important. This is so important. Instead of a life who's bound up in sin and some sort of addiction where Satan whips you up and beats you up all the time, and you're dominated by guilt and you're dominated by shame, now there is a life of victory and guilt-free living and deep peace and abiding joy. No more spiritual schizophrenia I shouldn't sin. I can't help myself. I do sin, whatever it may be, feeling guilty and terrible and defeated. No more of that. Now, let me uh, let me just tell you what I was talking about a little bit earlier. A lot of Christians live in First John one nine, and there's nothing wrong with First John one nine. It was one of the very first scriptures I memorized. But let me point out the the problem with living in First John one nine instead of Romans chapter six. The problem is this. Many of us know about our highways up here in the mountains. And we know about those particular places where you go around the corner and you go off the edge, you're going to go a long ways down there. And so ODOT, they had an option. ODOT had an option. And many of us know about those craggy highways along the coast, the Pacific Highway along the Oregon coast. And so, again, ODOT had an option. At every single where there is a a terrible section of road at the bottom, they could have built one of those health clinics, one of those emergency clinics, okay, at every single one. Or they could have put signs up here on the top warning people about that particular club, slow down and put the guardrails up there. They chose to put the guardrails up there. And yet many people don't understand That if I live on 1 John 1.9 and I go off the edge, where am I going to end up? I'm presuming on God's grace. I'm presuming on God's mercy. I'm presuming on God's forgiveness. And yet, where do you end up? You don't know how much damage you do to yourself. And you don't know how much damage you do to your family. And you just don't know where you're going to end up. And I've seen it. I've seen Christian people who will camp on First John nine, and they don't understand and they can't comprehend that they are involved in willful sin and they just don't know where they're going to end up. They tell me, oh, I'll get that divorce. I'll leave my husband. I'll leave my wife. There's nothing wrong with having an adulterous relationship because it's all under God's grace. And they don't understand the damage that they're doing to themselves and they don't understand the damage that they're doing to their family, and they're presuming on God's grace. Yes, God can forgive us for anything, but think about the damage that's done by the time you hit the bottom. Think about the damage. And yet people don't understand, they, they don't want to believe that Jesus Christ made a provision not only for the penalty of sin, but for the power of sin. And so they go down, and they wreck on the bottom, and I've been there, and you've been there to pick up the pieces. And they're wondering, how could this have ever happened? Well, it happened because they presumed on God's grace and they did not heed the warning signs and they did not understand what Romans chapter 6 said back up here. Case in point, notice he says the wages of sin is death. We've got to talk. Just a moment. I know it's, it, it just wipes us out. It wipes me out. But we've got to talk about the blights of sin. He says, look at it with me. He says, the wages of sin is death. You say, what happens, Pastor Ron? What happens? When you're involved in a sinful lifestyle, first of all, there is a breakdown in intimacy and there is a breakdown in fellowship with God. There is an instant breakdown and there is an intimate, intimate, uh, the intimate intimacy with God is broken. Here are the scriptures that support that, Ephesians 4.30 and 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Scripture talks about grieving God's spirit and quenching God's spirit. It's like a spigot is turned on. And God, if you you walk with the Lord and you know what I'm talking about and you've been blessed by his Holy Spirit and you feel God's presence and you're filled with the presence of God in your life and you walk and it's sweet and it's, it's great and there's peace in your life, but you begin to get in some sort of willful sin and you begin to wink at it and you begin to claim 1 John 1, nine, and you begin to presume on God's grace, then all of a sudden you find that you've quenched God's spirit. It's like a spigot that's being turned off and there was a flow and now there's just a little trickle. It happens. And then, number two, there's a removal of God's blessing, the blights of sin. Number three, there is misery of the guilty conscience. God begins to prick our conscience. He begins to convict us of the things that we're doing that are wrong, and our conscience becomes hardened after a while. And number four, we're talking about the blight of sin. There is a loss of personal integrity. We don't feel good about ourselves. We don't feel good about our situation. And number five, there is a sudden stoppage of spiritual growth. We become to rationalize. And what's the big deal? And we, again, presume God's grace. I want you to listen to what somebody writes. One lie has to be covered by a dozen more. And the downward cycle of sin moves from a problem to a faulty sinful response, therefore causing an additional complicating problems. Sinful harb- habits are hard to break, but if they're not broken, they'll bind you ever more tightly, and you will be held fast by these ropes in a downward cycle. Sin is a blasting presence and ever fine power that shrinks and withers and destructive feet. Every spiritual delicacy succumbs to its malignant touch. Sin impairs the sight and and works toward blindness. Sin benumbs the hearing and tends to make men deaf. Sin perverts the taste, causing men to confound the sweet with the bitter and the bitter with the sweet. Sin hardens the touch and eventually renders a man past feeling. In other words, sin creates callousness. And then there is reproach brought on to one's family. In the name of Christ, as drug through the mud. And then number eight, there's physical death. I found it sad, so sad, that this past year, Thomas Kincaid, the well-known painter, painter of light, that was the term given to him. Did you know that Thomas Kincaid went to church as a child? He grew up in a very troubled home, and according to his biography, he went to church as a child. And one of the churches that he went to was the Grass Valley, the Auburn area, Church of the Nazarene. And he made an early profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And you know the rest of the story. He became a successful businessman, a successful person. But I would say that Thomas Kincaid never got to the place, I'm not the judge, but I'm presuming, never got to the place where he really believed and experienced what we would call A victorious Christian life. This past year, because he went through a bitter divorce and because he presumed on God's grace, he died of an alcohol-related death. He died prematurely. And can I just digress? Some of you have been in my membership class. You've heard me. Get on a bandwagon. You say, you're on a bandwagon when you talk about alcohol. Well, if you experienced the things I did in my family and you watched your grandparents be so drunk, falling down and slobbering on themselves, and you would watch your aunt and you would watch your uncle and you would watch all your extended family mothers, with the exception of my mother and father, get involved in alcoholism and die premature deaths, you probably would get on a soapbox too. You're playing with a loaded 44 Magnum. One to two Christian people get in trouble with alcohol. Christian people. And it's just one of those things that people just presume on God's grace. It's no big deal. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen to me. If it doesn't happen to you, who's to say it's not going to happen to your children and grandchildren because they follow what you do? But he died a premature death because of alcohol related problems. He should not be dead. An old snaggletooth is jumping up and down for joy and the Christian church should be crying and weeping that another Christian died prematurely. The wages of sin is death. Sin begot sin. The first time we did it we did it with hesitation and a tremor and a shudder, shudder, and the second time we do it, it's easier, and we go on doing it, it becomes and it becomes effortless. Sin loses its terror. What's the big deal, Pastor Ron? I just confess my sins. You just don't know what kind of damage it can do. In the meantime, between the time you're jumping off the cliff or driving off the cliff and the time you hit the bottom. I'm almost done. I want to close with the story of Jonah one more time. I talked about him a couple weeks ago, very briefly. Here was this prophet of God, this man of God who had an intimate relationship with him. And God spoke to him one day, and he said, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites. I want you to go preach to these neighboring people. What you may or may not know is is that the Ninevites were terrible and horrible people. The Ninevites were the type of people that when they captured their enemies, they would torture them in all the cruel ways that you can think that, that are beyond your imagination. They would do all kinds of cruel things to these people. And they would literally smash the heads of little babies like you would smash a pumpkin or a watermelon. They were hated by the Jewish people. And so God says to Jonah one day, He says, I want you to go to preach to the Ninevites, and I want you to share my love with them and share my message of repentance. And the Bible says that Jonah got his back up, and he said, No way, Jose, I'm not going to go to the Ninevites. I'm not going to go over this way. I'm going to head east, and I'm going to go in the opposite direction. And so the Bible says he took off for what is modern-day Spain. He boarded a boat, and he got out there. Now, I want you to know along the way that several things happened to him. First of all, as soon as he said no to God, he began to quench God's spirit working in his life. And the second thing that happened to him, he began to have a hardened heart toward the things of God. And the third thing that happened to him is is that in this prideful condition, he began to say, I'm going to do my own thing and I don't care what happens to me. This is what sin does. You go off the edge and you don't know where you're going to land. And so he ended up on this boat. And in the middle of this boat, in the middle of this particular storm, we read, we read that... Is it... Oh... So anyway, the flowers fell. And so in the middle of this storm, they said, somebody must be guilty. And he said, I'm the person. And so they threw him overboard. And in the darkness of that water, the Bible says a fish swallowed him. And in the middle of that belly of that well, for three fish, well, whatever, for three days, he still would not soften his heart for God. toward God. He still kept saying, no, no, no. And in the middle of the third day, in the belly of that fish or well, can you imagine the smells? Can you imagine what was going on? In the middle of all that, the Bible says, the context tells us, he repents. And he says, Lord, I'm willing to do what you want me to do. And he's vomited on shore. And God restores eventually his relationship with Jonah, this man. This morning, I'm going to ask you to respond. I'm going to ask you to pray. And I'm going to ask you this morning, if you have not done so, that you would seek God in His fullness for your life, that the Lord would give you His spiritual power, His availability. You say, Pastor Ron, Can a spirit-filled Christian blow it? Can a spirit-filled Christian, can they backslide? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why it's so important to examine ourselves on a regular basis and to make sure that we have not hardened our heart against God. So this morning, I'm going to ask, I'm going to begin with all of you who are church board members. All of our church board members, would you please come forward at this time? Would you just come down here at our altars? All of our church board members, would you come down here?